Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Life Lessons from King David, with a message entitled, The City of God. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It's hard to know how to start. Where does one begin to tell the story of Jerusalem? And perhaps we could begin with Psalm 48, 1 to 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Or perhaps, you know, we could begin with Psalm 87, 1 to 3. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. You know, perhaps we could begin with Genesis 22 when Abraham took his son Isaac to sacrifice him on an altar. And there he was on Mount Moriah just outside of the gates of Jerusalem with his son tied to an altar when the angel of the Lord intervened and provided a ram as a substitute. It was later on that very spot that David would buy a threshing floor and offer a sacrifice that would stop the plague that threatened great death in Jerusalem. It was on that spot that Solomon would build the temple. And then again, it was just outside of Jerusalem, just like Isaac, that a greater son of Abraham would himself be bound to another altar in the shape of a cross and be the substitute ram so that he would die at the hand of God for our sins. You know, it's hard to overemphasize the importance of Jerusalem In the future, the Messiah, Jesus himself, will reign from Jerusalem. It's not Washington, New York, or Beijing, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, or Singapore that vie for the most important city of the world. That city will be for all eternity, Jerusalem. It's the city of God. While King Saul was king of Israel, Jerusalem in the center of Israel was inhabited by the Jebusites. The Jebusites were a warlike people who lived in the mountains primarily, In the time of Joshua, the Jebusite king was Adonai Zedek, who organized a confederacy against Joshua. Even though Adonai Zedek was defeated, the Bible tells us that the Jebusites could not be driven from their mountainous positions, and they also had the city of Jerusalem, which was their ultimate fortress. It was so strongly garrisoned that it could not be conquered. That city made sure that Israel could not lay hand on the whole of the land. And that's the situation as it was when David became the second king over all Israel. So let's start with our study in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. Abner has just been murdered, and then shortly after that, Ishbosheth, the king, was also murdered. With the house of Saul now having lost its power, David takes the initiative not, not to express triumph over Saul's household, but rather to call a national day of mourning. He executed Ishbosheth's murderers. And it soon becomes apparent that wicked men had carried this out and that David was in no way responsible for that horrible turn of events. So now we come to 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. 
David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, even though it is true that Saul made David his enemy, you know, at this point in time, at the time of national mourning, the leaders of all the tribes of Israel came to Hebron, where David has his capital. They've come to make David king over them all for two important reasons. First, David was never an enemy of King Saul. You know, Saul may have been hunting down David, but David had never hunted Saul, nor had he ever turned his hand against Saul. Let me say to all of us, it's not possible if you seek to accomplish anything in this life to have no enemies. Enemies will come. However, it is a great virtue if it be said that we have never sought to harm our enemies. Let those who slander us be what they are, the accuser of the brethren, but let us not join in with them. Furthermore, the leaders of Israel remembered that in the earlier days when David had still served Saul, that David had distinguished himself. It was he who had won the greatest victories against those enemies of the nation that were still warring within her borders. Well, the second reason the leaders of Israel were united to make David king was that they remembered that God had spoken through the prophet Samuel that it was David who would be the next king of Israel. So we're reminded again of the position of power and influence that Abner had over Israel. Abner would not allow David to become king, and if Abner is taken out of the way, the people become united. Again, we're left to reflect on the power that certain people wield over people, over nations, churches, cultural groups, and so forth. Leadership can be both a blessing and it can also be the cause of unending division and strife. I have no doubt that Joab, David's commander, who was given direct orders to ensure that Abner would remain safe, simply reasoned that David was making a horrible mistake. If Abner were to be allowed to live, his unending power games would harm David and the future of Israel. And perhaps from that perspective, Joab was right. But David, for his part, had already learned some very valuable lessons. He would not run ahead of God. Let God deal with Abner. David would wait on the Lord. So who was right, Joab or David? I hope that as you seek to answer that question, that you might remember the words that David himself would later write in Psalm 37, one to three. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And then later in verse 8, David would add, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. It only leads to evil or more evil. You know, Paul said something very similar in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That, as we will see, is one of the great differences between David and his commander Joab. See, Joab took immediate action and eliminated any threat before it had time to gain momentum. On the other hand, David had already demonstrated that he is prepared to leave these matters to the vengeance of God. Well, you might ask, but why then is David, as we examine his kingship, such a man of blood? Yeah, it's true. David waged some very savage wars, as we're going to see. But it's also true that David waged these wars to establish the boundaries of the promised land as had been promised to Abraham 
and in order to protect the people of God. But when it came to his personal enemies, well, David took a very different approach. So his willingness to wait for God actually unified the nation. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. You know, a failure to wait for God to act has destroyed families and churches, denominations and nations. It's simply a lack of confidence when we can no longer repeat, if God is for us, who can be against us? But David had that confidence. He, he was a man after God's own heart. And the leaders of Israel saw it, and they knew that God had given them their king. So David's first act was to move his capital from Hebron. But where was he going to go? He's fully aware of Deuteronomy 12 and the mention of the place that the Lord would choose as the center for all Israel. Hebron was too far south, but Jerusalem lay at its very center. You know, given its location and the strength of its fortifications, David knew that this is where he had to go. But how does one capture a town from the Jebusites that no one from Joshua to the present was able to defeat? See, the city was strongly fortified, especially around the only area the city got its water supply, and that was from the Gihon Spring. The Jebusites had built massive towers there, and they were confident that they had enough water and food in the city to withstand any siege. And that's where David's first act as king is really tested. 2 Samuel 5 verse 6 says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. See, I would imagine the Jebusites taunted David from the wall. If all we had in this city were just some blind and lame men, they would still prevent you from coming in. And they mocked him that way. We're unassailable. We don't even have to expend the effort to stop you from taking the city. Now, verse 7 is a remarkable verse because it simply says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and we're left to immediately ask, how in the world did he manage that? Well, now that's one of the great stories in all of human history. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts. The story of David's capture of Jerusalem is one of a strategic and brilliant military success, and yet it occupies so little space in the pages of our Bible. See, our Bible simply says in here, 2 Samuel 5, 8 to 10, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. 
Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, that is all that said about one of the most important battles in the history of Israel. Well, why so? Why not describe this in glowing detail, like blow after blow? And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But for now, let's see if we can recreate this battle from what we know. See, archaeologists have discovered an extensive series of tunnels under the city that was once occupied by the Jebusites. Archaeologists have found the remains of a huge tower built by the Canaanites about 2000 BC. And that would mean that at the time of David, that tower had already stood for a thousand years. Each stone of that tower weighed several tons, so you weren't going to move them. Well, that tower defended the water supply and it ensured the safety of the city. The city itself is atop of a valley that runs all around it, so the only way to attack it would be to go up a very steep embankment until you come to the top of the mountain where there would be a stone wall of the city. See, that's why the Jebusites taunted David. The blind and the lame will defend this place against you. You're no threat at all. And David quickly realized that he couldn't attack this city in the ordinary way. According to 1 Chronicles 11, David had promised that whoever leads the attack against the Jebusites will be his chief commander. And Joab, who wanted to keep his position and because he was a man of action, immediately took charge. Our text speaks of a water shaft that led into the city. Well, it was back in 1867 that the archaeologist Charles Warren crawled through a tunnel under the spring of Gihon and discovered a vertical shaft that rose up straight up 13 meters. Well, Warren climbed up that shaft and to his amazement, he found another tunnel that continued to rise steeply until it came out right inside the city above. And Warren realized he had just discovered the tunnel that went down to the city's water supply at the time of the Jebusites. Now, back in David's time, we don't know how he became aware of that tunnel, but he did. Perhaps it was a spy or a Jebusite defector who told him about it, but Joab very likely got in just by himself. He would have climbed that dark tunnel. He would have crawled up that 13-meter shaft. He would have continued to scramble through the tunnel that came after it, and then he would have come out by himself into the city. Well, what would he do then? Well, he would have sprinted from the opening of that shaft to the city gates and simply opened them. No one would have noticed one man doing that. And before the Jebusites even knew their city gates were now wide open, David's men would have rushed through those gates, and now the battle would be fought right within the city. And David's men were too much for them, and the city falls to David. So why isn't more said about that? Well, I think the answer is that this is a natural weakness of the city, and it was not going to be advertised in the pages of the Bible, lest future enemies would exploit the same weakness. In the future, kings of Israel would work very hard to further fortify the Gihon Springs and did it remarkably well. Now, that's the drama. and It really is a quite amazing drama. But what's also amazing is the statement that the blind and the lame would hold Israel's king out of Jerusalem. You know, in an interesting twist, did you know that although Jesus did a number of miracles in Jerusalem, yet only two of them are recorded. 
John 5 records Jesus' healing of the layman at the pool of Bethesda, and John 9 records Jesus healing the blind man who was blind from birth. In an amazing turn of events, it was the blind and the lame who demonstrated that Israel's eternal king had just entered into her gates, and that at Jerusalem, Jesus, the greater son of David, would die for the sins of the world, and so begin a reign over the human race that would have no end. And so they taunted David with the blind and the lame, and Jesus taunted this fallen and sinful world by healing the blind and the lame. But let's get back to David. You know, his first action after becoming king is a brilliant and impossible move in which he sets up his capital at the very center of the nation. This already would have unified the country. His next move, equally brilliant. The Philistines hear that David has been anointed king, and they're completely aware that they have faced no more deadly foe on the battlefield before than this brilliant commander. Now he's king, and that's bad news. No one among them was boasting now about having killed Saul. You know, second, they, they would have also heard about Jerusalem, how he'd accomplished what must have seemed like an impossible victory. They immediately make a call to arms. David must be defeated while he's still early in his reign. I mean, given his abilities, it will take very little time for him to fortify his position of power. But David hears about the Philistine plan, and I have no doubt the time that David spent among the Philistines had allowed him to gain informants, and he knows exactly what's happening. Immediately, he leaves Jerusalem and goes to some unknown fortress You know, it's probably a fortified city that would have been very close to the territory of the Philistines. Rather than waiting for them to come to him, David will take the initiative. So 2 Samuel chapter 5 describes two very decisive battles. The first battle occurs in the valley of Rephaim, which is a valley that leads from the southwest of Israel and it leads right up into Jerusalem. And see, I have no doubt the Philistines were assembling there because they were going to march their army onto Jerusalem and besiege the city. But David has been seeking God, and he immediately marches towards the Philistines in what was no doubt a very surprise move. Indeed, David so overran their forces in the first battle that in panic, the Philistines left their idols behind. Well, the second battle again happened in the same valley shortly after. Having been beaten by a surprise move on the first occasion, the Philistines are now ready to retaliate. Again, David inquires of God, and God instructs him to come around them from the rear, behind the balsam trees, another move that left the Philistines stunned. See, on that occasion, cut off from retreating to their fortress, David is now able to inflict incredible losses on the Philistine army, not by attacking their strongest point, but by attacking the weakest point at the rear, at the back. It was a devastating defeat for the Philistines, and they're stunned. In an instant, Israel has gone from being a vassal state paying tribute and excessive taxes to their Philistine overlords to now having two decisive defeats and breaking the grip of Philistine power. Those were incredible days. Suddenly, the Israelites are walking around with a swagger, In his best moments, King Saul could never have dreamt of such success. You know, his was a kingdom that was constantly in trouble. The Philistines were always a problem, and eventually they bested Saul and he died at their hands. As to expelling the Jebusites or other people groups that still claimed large portions of the land, I mean, Saul could not have even dreamt of anything like that. 
Eventually, he became so infatuated with the idea of killing David that his kingdom was falling into disrepair. But in very short order, David proved himself to be a very different man. But he's still not done. 2 Samuel 6 tells the story of David's plan to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. In David's mindset, Jerusalem will be far more than a secure and fortified capital of the king. This place will be the center of Israel's worship of God. David is no doubt acting completely in line with the things that Moses had commanded in Deuteronomy 12, 10 to 11. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And then in verses 13 and 14, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose in one of the tribes, there you shall offer burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. You know, David is now a man who understands what Jerusalem is. This is the place that God has chosen as a centerpiece for worship where sacrifices and offerings would be offered. Little did David know that this would also be the place where the Messiah, David's greater son, Jesus himself, would sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. David truly is a man of God. He is setting the stage on which Jesus would later walk. John, thanks so much. But let me ask you, is there a chance that uh, as Christians, we don't talk about the significance of Jerusalem enough, both for today and for eternity? Yeah, I, I remember the first time someone challenged me, Ben, and he, uh, you know, he had said, uh, have you done a good study of the history of Jerusalem and the future of Jerusalem? And uh, well, back then I hadn't done it, but it did put a little, you know, uh, a burr in my saddle that this is something I definitely needed to do. And so the more I... I learned about Jerusalem, the more I realized that it is the future of every child of God. There is something that God has done in that city and which God will do when the new Jerusalem comes. So this is the homeland of all of God's people. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues the series, Life Lessons from King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. By now, many New Year's resolutions have been broken, if not abandoned. The cynic may suggest there is no use in making any resolutions, but that's not the Christian path. The Christian life is filled with intentions that are set despite our spotty track record. The solution is not to abandon our good intentions, but to persist by God's grace. On that note, if deepening your prayer life has been on your heart this year, then you'll want to request our latest booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers selected by Dr. John that span the 16th to 19th centuries. They reflect the language of that day, but its content is rich and effectively reflects the longing of our hearts in prayer. To request your free copy, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.